The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. It's March 2nd, the time is 624, and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Yarthadonna Storg, bringing you Eye on the Triangle for this windy, beautiful Wednesday evening. Nick Weaver brings you the Modest Mouth Review. This week he reviews Seeds, the 2014 album by TV on the Radio. And Jake Winters brings you Snowverated. This week he reviews Moon, the science fiction drama starring Kevin Spacey. Peter Svazini has the community calendar. And Saif Hassan brings you the news beyond the headlines. Kevin Kronk brings us a look at the news around North Carolina. He'll be talking about the new sales tax increase as well as a program that will offer a second chance for citizens. And Jamie Holla takes a look at the Oscars and Justice for Flint in his pop culture segment. There's an alternative way that students can spend spring break with the university recreation. Marissa Jordan talks with Nathan Williams, the assistant director of outdoor adventures at North Carolina State University, to talk about it. is a well-anticipated vacation from the mountains of schoolwork college students endure each spring semester. But what if you don't have plans or would like to experience something new? Then University Recreation may have just the program for you. This program is called Dive, and in order to learn more about it, I talked with Nathan Williams, the Assistant Director of Outdoor Adventures for University Recreation. Dive's this awesome program. It stands for Diversity and Inclusion Adventure Experience. And so it's eight-day trip that we offer to students over spring break. And students apply for it. And if they're accepted, it's totally free. And this year, what we're doing for it is a kayaking trip to the Florida Everglades. So like camping on beaches and seeing dolphins and all that good stuff. While we talk about diversity and social justice in addition to wellness and also access to clean water, one of society's grand challenges. One of the group goals is to discuss issues of social justice, both on NC State's campus and in a broader context. So I asked Mr. Williams to elaborate on this goal. Well, I think it's pretty obvious that we're at a really challenging time on campus in terms of campus climate and also around the country and the world. So really what the trip hopes to do is to lay a foundation of knowledge for students so that they know how to discuss issues of social justice, whether it's clean water situation in Flint, Michigan, or it's events that have occurred on campus here. We want to give students the knowledge and the language to discuss that, but more importantly, we want to empower them to hopefully 
make a positive contribution to the NC State community and other communities where they are. We want to enable them to do that. This trip will also have a major focus on health and well-being. Wellness has been a big thing for university recreation. Uh, We actually have two wellness coordinators now at UREC. So there's going to be a wellness workshop throughout. So we actually have like curriculum, (laughs) not to sound too lame, but they'll actually have lessons about how to be healthy students. You probably know a lot of students don't treat themselves the best. So in terms of getting enough sleep, drinking enough water, obviously exercising, getting outside. So some of it will be just like the cold, hard facts of how to be a healthy college student. But beyond that, we also want them to be encouraging their friends and their family to be active. And we'll be kayaking every day. So that's going to be a wellness activity in and of itself. Another major component of this trip will focus on NC State's strategic planning process, which is a program started by Chancellor Woodson in 2010 to identify the university's critical issues and how to address them. This dive trip focuses on a grand challenge of society, specifically access and use of clean water. This is part of the university's strategic plan, addressing these grand challenges. And the Everglades in Florida is this area that has a a constant problem filtering water. When they turned all that area in the Everglades to farms, it took away freshwater filtration for the city of Miami and all of South Florida. So it's a really great example of how things went a little off with the way that we treat the environment and also one where they're currently restoring it. So they're restoring it to bring back this natural engineering that the filtration of the Everglades does. While registration for this year's dive trip may be closed, University Recreation runs a similar trip every year. The applications generally go live in January, but we're going to pick our location before the end of this calendar year. So if they just watch our website at recreation.ncsu.edu, it'll be up there. And we haven't decided yet if it'll be to the Everglades again or if we'll be going backpacking in western North Carolina, which is what we did the last few years. They can stay tuned for that. And it's totally free if they apply and they're accepted. Hopefully students look out for the other trips and experiences we offer because we do dive just once a year, uh, but pretty much every weekend throughout the school year. We've got outdoor trips, whether it's backpacking or kayaking or canoeing and throughout the summer as well. Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Study. Organic meat puts more nutrition on your plate. Researchers who analyzed multiple studies from around the world have concluded organic production of dairy products and meat provides more nutrients for dinner. The findings in the British Journal of Nutrition say organic meat and dairy has 50% more omega-3 fatty acids, which contain nutrients linked to lower cardiovascular disease risks and improve mental health. Study co-author Carlo Liefert explains how organic and conventional foods differ. I think the main difference with respect to the composition differences we've seen is the feeding regimes. The organic standards, they enforce outside grazing and access to the outside, and they restrict, especially for ruminants, concentrate feed. Leiferit says the research does not conclude that organic foods are healthier, only that most studies show they contain an increased level of nutrients. There are downsides to grass-fed cattle. 
They need more acreage to graze, which costs more to tend, and as a result, grass-fed beef often is more expensive than conventional beef. Hickory Nut Gap Farm in Asheville has been raising organic meat for the last 15 years. Owner and farmer Jamie Agger says the discoveries from the study come as no surprise when you think about how animals on organic farms are fed. Organic cattle are generally raised on pasture when you are able to get your nutrition from the grass. And it just makes sense that the fat in the meat would be healthier. Agger says they're seeing a growth of 15% a year in the demand for organic meats, fruits, and vegetables. There's more and more people interested in what we're doing and the type of agriculture that we promote. And so it's exciting to see all these people getting interested in how this works. According to the FDA, as of 2014, organic products now are available in nearly 20,000 natural food stores and nearly three out of every four conventional grocery stores. Organic sales account for more than 4% of total U.S. food sales, according to recent industry statistics. Program offers second chance for North Carolina citizens. Reducing the number of people who re-offend after being released from prison and increasing public safety is the goal of a pilot program in Nash, Edgecombe, and Wilson counties, just east of Raleigh. The new re-entry council is funded by the North Carolina Department of Public Safety and administered by the North Carolina Community Action Association. According to training coordinator Christina Dillard, the program works by providing support to people as they reintegrate back into society as they find work, housing, and a supportive community. Employment, transportation, and housing are just the basic human needs that all of us need, and especially someone who is going to be facing challenges with having stigmatized and um, having this criminal record. Dillard says currently 49% of people released from jail or prison return within a few years in North Carolina. In its first 17 months, 91% of people enrolled in the program obtained jobs or earned educational or vocational credit. Four other areas were identified by the Department of Public Safety as having a high rate of citizens re-entering communities after a prison or jail sentence. Those include Mecklenburg, Buncombe, Pitt, and the region of Hoke, Scotland, and Robinson County. Dillard says beyond giving people the opportunity to improve their life, the program benefits the entire community. That's the issue of public safety. Research has shown that when there are opportunities for people to be proactive in their communities, for people to be engaged and involved and supported, that those people typically are less likely to reoffend and go back to jail or prison, which means there's less crime in the community. She also points out that people who find employment also begin contributing to the economy through taxes and consumer spending versus spending time in prison and costing taxpayers for that service. The cost to house a prisoner. The North Carolina sales tax increase starts March 1st. Next time a repair is needed from furniture to cell phones to shoes, expect to pay a little more. Today, a new state sales tax on services begins in North Carolina. The tax passed last year is around 7% depending on the county. It means a $500 car repair would cost an additional $37. David Zoll with Acoustic Corner, a music store in Black Mountain, says he's not clear exactly where the additional money he's collecting will go. That's a good question. Who knows where it's going at this point? I hope it's going somewhere good. On a large repair where the labor charge is big, it might hurt some folks. State lawmakers intended the new tax revenue to replace some of the money lost from income and corporate tax cuts from 2013 and last year. Without those tax cuts, 
the state would have generated an additional $2.3 billion annually by 2019. The state estimates the new services tax will raise just $159 million in its first full year. The latest state income tax cuts save about $500 for households making $95,000 a year, but only about 50 bucks for someone making $30,000 a year. And Cedric Johnson with the NC Budget and Tax Center calls it unfair that the new tax on repairs and services weighs more heavily on lower income families. It disproportionately hits low and moderate income. North Carolina taxpayers in general, the hardest simply because they spend a much greater share of their income on things subject to the sales and excise tax. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, people with incomes of around $35,000 spend $630 a year on repairs and maintenance. Johnson says the tax code changes are bound to put a greater burden on the same households that are also are more keenly affected by cuts to social safety net programs with decreased state revenue tax shift is happening and at the same time with the massive revenue loss from the tax changes since 2013, we simply don't have adequate revenues at the state level to invest in the things in local communities that drive local economies. This has been a North Carolina News I'm Saif Hassan and this is your News Beyond the Headlines. Jordan says an air raid in the city of Irbid that left seven suspected jihadist militants dead foiled attacks being plotted by the so-called Islamic State. Those killed were planning to blow up civilian and military targets in the country, according to the General Intelligence Directorate. A security officer was also killed and five were injured during the overnight raid, which triggered armed clashes. Jordan is part of a United States-led coalition battling ISIS fighters in Syria and Iraq. It launched airstrikes on ISIS positions in Syria in 2014 to ensure the stability and security of its borders and has stepped up a crackdown on suspected ISIS sympathizers inside the kingdom. Last year, Jordan executed two convicted jihadists following the killing of a Jordanian pilot who was captured by IS militants after his jet crashed in Syria. The operation in Irbid, which is 12 miles from the Syrian border, was reportedly one of the largest targeted suspected jihadists in years. The directorate had stated that it had thwarted a plot by ISIS to attack civilian and military sites in order to destabilize national security. Security forces tracked the suspected militants to a residential building in Irbid, which security sources said was near a Palestinian refugee camp in the city center. The terrorists refused to surrender and put up strong resistance using automatic weapons, the directorate said, adding that those killed were wearing explosive belts. Weapons, ammunition, explosives, and detonators were also found at the scene. The directorate said 13 people linked to the cell were detained in earlier raids in Irbid. Moving to Asia, the United Nations Security Council has unanimously adopted a resolution significantly expanding international sanctions against North Korea. Correspondents say the new measures amount to some of the toughest against North Korea in 20 years. The vote is in response to North Korea's nuclear test last month. The sanctions will result in all cargo going to and from the country being inspected, with 16 new individuals and 12 organizations being blacklisted. Addressing the council after the vote, the United States ambassador to the UN, Samantha Power, said that it was a perverse reality that North Korea was more interested in developing its nuclear and ballistic missile programs than it was in meeting the basic needs of its people. The United States and North Korea's long-standing ally China spent seven weeks discussing the new sanctions. 
In addition to the mandatory cargo inspections, the sanctions also include a ban on all sales or transfers of small arms and light weapons to North Korea, as well as the expulsion of diplomats from North Korea who engage in illicit activities. The United States, its Western allies, and Japan were eager for the new sanctions to be speedily put in place and pushed for them to be as wide-ranging as possible. But China made it clear that it did not want to impose measures that could jeopardize the stability of North Korea and cause its economy to collapse. The United Nations resolution emphasizes that the new sanctions are not intended to lead to adverse humanitarian consequences for civilians, many of whom face financial hardships and shortages of food already. North Korea's launch of a long-range rocket in February and a nuclear test in January were widely condemned as a flagrant violation of UN resolutions. North Korea earlier said it would no longer take part in the UN Human Rights Council sessions examining its rights record. Foreign Minister Ri Su-yong accused the UN of politicizing the issues and singling out North Korea for criticism. The UN Council has repeatedly criticized North Korea over its treatment of its citizens. North Korea insists its missile program is purely scientific in nature, but the United States, South Korea, and even China say such rocket launches are aimed at developing intercontinental ballistic missiles. North Korea claimed this nuclear test was a test of its hydrogen bomb technology. I'm Saif Hassan, and this is your News Beyond the Headlines. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. For today's episode, we're going to hop in our time machines and jump back to the year 2014, when people still cared about the ice bucket challenge and the cleanliness of the water in Sochi was more important than what was coming out of our own taps. Seriously, people were way too concerned about that. It was Russia. It's not like tweeting them was going to fix anything. Plus, those were at least moderately wealthy athletes. They could have had, like, Fiji water shipped in. Meanwhile, the people in Flint, Michigan, were still drinking as of then undiscovered lead in the water supply. <clears throat> At any rate, the album I'll be reviewing today is Seeds by TV on the Radio. For those unfamiliar, TV on the Radio is a currently fairly popular art rock band that started out back in 2003 with just members Tunde Adabimpe and David Andrew Satek. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. They self-released their first album, OK Calculator, which I actually laughed out loud at when I first read it, to critical acclaim. Over the years, both their band and their popularity has grown in size. They've since recruited members Kip Malone, Jaleel Bunton, and Gerard Smith, the latter staying with the band from 2005 until he passed away in 2011. The band is well known for songs like Anything Will Do and Wolf Like Me, both of which I am personally fond of. Well, I have been personally fond of. Once you listen to certain songs upwards of 20 or 30 times, they tend to lose their charm. Regardless, these guys have been going strong and gradually making their way towards the mainstream since inception. Some would say they've succeeded in that, myself included, which leads me into the review itself. Seeds is TV on the radio's latest album, and it charted at 22 on the US charts. I'd say that's a pretty decent indicator of success, even though it's well below where their previous two albums have charted. It begs the question, with this mainstream popularity, does TV on the radio have a mainstream sound? By this, of course, I mean, does it sound like your average top 40 dribble? The clear answer to this is no, but the question isn't necessarily without merit. 
While I haven't listened to any of the band's other albums, I'm familiar with a portion of their work. From what I can tell, Seeds keeps to its roots. The band's sound remains consistent with what I've heard from earlier work, and thus I would say that despite reaching mainstream status, there's been no mainstream departure. However, I can't disregard the fact that Seeds definitely has a certain aspect to it that makes me feel like it wouldn't be entirely out of place on your average pop radio station. Would I say it's pop? Not entirely. Seeds absolutely has its own sound and feel to it unique from many other bands. On some songs, it's very definite art rock, and I could compare it to Bowie's Black Star, a bit haunting, lingering, unconventional, and definitely provocative. Songs like Quartz defy the norm, giving off an almost circus-like feel during the chorus. Abnormal, dissonant chord patterns give this song its own flair, while complex instrumentation carry it the rest of the way. Other songs, like Ride, also give off a unique vibe, with a deep orchestral intro that transitions into an echoing synth-rock blend. Not to mention it's incredibly catchy. Adebempe's distinctive vocals are also incredibly helpful in defining this band's sound. And yet, on songs like Winter and Test Pilot, the album sounds like something one of the top 40 bands would put out. Not necessarily bad, but not really innovative in the same way you would expect from an art rock band, you know? Even for songs that are distinctively TV on the radio, the focus on this album seems to be on catchy repetition, that quintessential hook that we all know so well from mainstream songs. A very basic pattern of notes that continue throughout the whole song in some form or another, be it through repetitive vocals or emphasized guitar accompaniment. The point of the hook is always to draw you in, but in art rock, a hook ironically just throws you off. It defeats the purpose of the exercise, essentially. So that brings us back to the question, has TV on the radio moved away from art rock towards a more mainstream sound? Honestly, I don't know. But it's worth thinking about. Regardless of whether or not that's the case, I always stress the importance of looking at change, not in terms of bad or good, but in terms of what you personally prefer. Because in the end, music is incredibly subjective and personal, and is nigh impossible to measure in such explicit terms. So, yeah. Think about it, I guess. Now that I've wasted a good portion of my time droning on about whether or not the band fits an arbitrary label, I'd like to talk about the variety on this album. And believe me, there is quite a range in style. The album starts off with a strong emphasis on percussion-heavy instrumentation, with mostly elements of synth, ambience, and a touch of rock. Not that much, but some. As the album progresses, particularly around the song Could You, it starts to bleed more into reverb-laden, guitar-heavy instrumentation. At this point, the synth is basically missing, and the ambient elements are almost impossible to detect. And then immediately after that song, we go back to the primarily synth and ambient blend with a touch of rock. That gradually starts to blend into an equal mix of the three main elements with rock becoming more and more prominent as the songs progress, up until the eighth song, Right Now, which honestly sounds almost like a blend of R&B and indie. It's such a weird song, so out of place. Not my favorite. Oh well, at least this variety roller coaster is over, right? Wrong. Immediately after that comes the song Winter, which is just straight up indie rock. Like, no ands or buts about it. That song is well and truly indie rock. Excuse me? Where did we just come from? It was like half R&B and indie. Not even rock indie, just indie. And then immediately after that, you're just gonna pick up the mildly distorted guitars and speed up the drums twofold like nothing happened? But whatever. You know, at least the next song stays in the realm of indie rock. The last two songs on the album are also within familiar range of the album's prior songs, but they're still incredibly different from the song preceding them. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if this album were a mixtape, it would probably suck a little bit. 
just in terms of cohesiveness. Otherwise, I'd say it's a great album. It's just those few little things here and there that really nag me. So with all of that said, what's the final rating for this album? Well, on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I'm going to go ahead and say this one's about a 4.5, maybe a 5. Definitely above average, but the wild variety makes it hard to enjoy as one piece, and the emphasis on catchy hooks turns me off slightly. Still enjoyable, and I would definitely listen to this again in some form or another. In the future, aside from using the acronym TOTER as an official abbreviation, I'd like to see TV on the radio work towards making their next album flow from song to song. It's a small thing, but consistency really helps in the long run. Or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Music is subjective and whatnot. Side note, it's oddly paradoxical for a reviewer of music to proclaim that there's no such thing as bad music, isn't it? I mean, my job is literally to warn you of bad music and alert you to good stuff. In other words, my job should not exist. Pfft, whatever. You guys will listen to me regardless of whether or not I exist or make sense. What do I care? That's all for today. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Linz, Plesk, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. As always, you can send in review requests by tweeting at WKNC underscore EOT or emailing publicaffairs at WKNC.org. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and this week I will be taking a look at the film Moon. Moon is set in the future where a man is working by himself, mining for a power source that helps to keep the world supplied with power. He lives there with his only companion being an artificial intelligence designed to keep him safe and happy. From the moment this movie started, I believed it was going to be a stereotypical space movie where the robot turns on the man. I won't say if I was right or wrong, but I will say it did not end in the way I expected it to. The movie did end up having some actually original conflicts and had an interesting plot arc. There were tense moments, sad moments, and heroic moments. Honestly, it is hard to see why this movie flew so low on the world's radar back in 2009. It wasn't hugely popular, but did have some success with 9.76 million USD pulled in. This is a large amount of money, but to put it into perspective, The Dark Knight, released in the same year, made 534.9 million. So for many, this movie may have easily been overlooked. If you are someone that got so hyped up about Batman you missed every other movie that year, I suggest you take a look at this one. The filming of the movie had to use some unusual techniques. Without going into too much detail about the film, they had to shoot a scene where the actor was on the screen but in two different places at the same time. This was done well enough, but at times it felt very rough. You could tell where the cuts were to deal with the problem and I felt it could have been done better. The CGI in the movie is not exactly spectacular either. But I may be saying that because I am so spoiled with movies like Interstellar and Avatar in terms of CGI. Beyond computer generated setting though, I felt like the props and set design were done well. Not everything in the movie was explained, leaving some ambiguity and high tech awe to the surroundings which I liked. Throughout the film, although it is not a key point, I found myself intrigued with the layout of the base. I wondered why there were ladders in some places and weird separations of sections of the base throughout. 
This undetermined aspect of the area added life to it. It made me realize that this is a setting I am not familiar with and have no experience in. Sometimes films make spacecraft seem too comfortable and familiar, and it seems as though it is normal, like it's an airplane. The story is never overly exciting or dramatic, but there are a lot of tense and suspenseful scenes. This film takes its viewer on a roller coaster of emotion. I think you can see almost every emotion in this movie, which is something I don't think can be said about every movie. Moon does a good job of showing a wide range of emotions. The acting by Sam Rockwell, essentially the only actor in the movie, is superb. He does talk to Gertie though, the robot voiced by Kevin Spacey, and that is different than being the only actor. I really felt like he nailed the eccentric character that had been living on the moon for three years by himself, and the other character he plays was well done too. Duncan Jones, the director of this movie, also directed the upcoming Warcraft movie. He has said that he wants to go on to make Moon into a trilogy and hopefully does, as it is a spectacular idea. While the film is not left open-ended, there is a lot to be told and built upon in this concept, and the way the film ends is a perfect balance between beginning a new story and ending this one. It is as though you are closing one book and just reading the first page of the next. I'm going to give Moon a 7 out of 10. I felt like there is more that could have been done to make it a great film and bring it above the 7, but it just wasn't there. The plot was interesting and the acting was solid, but some of the filming was a little shaky and was not perfect. This film is the perfect setup for a great trilogy. If Duncan Jones revisits the story, and I really hope he does, he has a lot of great content to work with and I'm sure it will be a great film. I'm sure that once you watch this movie, you will also be on the lookout for his next film. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Snow Rated and Eye on the Triangle. If you have any comments on my review, feel free to send an email to publicaffairs at wknc.org. Have a good night. Hello, I'm Jamie Halla, and this segment is called KNC Goes TMZ. Or more appropriately, a discussion of pop culture in America and sometimes the world, albeit a bit more highbrow than TMZ, I'd like to think. Over the weekend, many Americans tuned in to watch one of the biggest award shows of the year, the Oscars. Chris Rock hosted the event and in a highlight of the evening, had his daughter sell Girl Scout cookies to the crowd, raising about $2,500 for his daughter's troop. He also did not shy away from the Oscar so white controversy, focusing many of his jokes and skits on race in Hollywood, thus bringing race to the forefront of many of the white viewers' minds. The reaction to Chris Rock seems to be mostly positive, despite probably making many white viewers uncomfortable. So, who are the big winners and losers? Well, the big one will probably be Leonardo DiCaprio finally winning an Oscar after like five, maybe six nominations. Who really knows at this point? So, congratulations to him for finally winning. All it took was eating raw meat and chilling in the carcass of a dead horse for a bit. Brie Larson won Best Actress for her work in Room, a first-time nominee, so congrats to her as well. Mad Max Fury Road took home six awards, mainly for the technical aspects of film, but failed to win Best Movie. That privilege went to Spotlight, a movie that's about to get a lot of spotlight as it definitely didn't have any before the big win. The biggest loser of the night would have to be Inside Out. While winning Animated the Movie of the Year, it wasn't even nominated for Best Movie of the Year, a glorious error on the Oscars voters as Inside Out was the best movie of 2015, if not the entire decade. The moment of the evening came when Lady Gaga performed her song, Till It Happens to You, a song about sexual violence and rape. During the performance, a group of sexual assault survivors accompanied her to create one powerful moment for all those attending and watching. Hopefully the Oscars work on incorporating more things like Lady Gaga's performance and including more diversity in the years to come. During the Oscars, Creed director Ryan Coogler and Selma director Ava DuVernay led a rally at the Whiting Auditorium in Flint, Michigan, 
The rally was called Justice for Flint and acted as a benefit event to raise money for the victims of the Flint water crisis. Hosted by comedian Hannibal Burris, the night saw a collection of black actors and musicians in attendance to support the cause. There were many performances, including one by Janelle Monet, in which she started out performing in a straight jacket. There was a surprise performance from Stevie Wonder, which resulted in a duet with Monet, and Chicago rapper Vic Mensa debuted a new song entitled 16 Shots. 16 Shots was a high-energy yet emotionally devastating song, focusing on the shooting of Laquan McDonald in Chicago and police brutality in general. Once this song is actually released, it is sure to be an important song and make an impact much like many of Kendrick Lamar's best songs. Others performed including a poet who was pregnant with twins but lost both of them due to lead poisoning. Overall, the event raised $145,000 for Flint's recovery. This has been Jamie Hall with Adam Tryon. Good afternoon. This is Peter Swazeni bringing you this week's community calendar. An Eye on the Triangle segment informing you of cool events occurring on campus or around the Raleigh-Durham area for the upcoming week. This week's segment of the community calendar will be a special one. The NCSU students have spring break next week, but there's still plenty to do. And I'll go through all that you can between now and... Friday. And after that, I'll spout out a event or two going on downtown if you are looking to have a staycation here in Raleigh. So first up on the list is an event held at the Hunt Library. It is titled Archives and Data Visualization at the NCSU Libraries, Enhancing Research on Women in STEM. Two NCSU Library Fellows, Heidi Tibb and Virginia Ferris, will discuss how resources at the NCSU Libraries can assist researchers and others wanting to learn more about the legacy of women in STEM at NC State from its earliest pioneers to today. Following a brief presentation, attendees are invited to enjoy refreshments, view data and archival materials about women in STEM through a visualization on the iPearl Immersion Theater. Introductory remarks will be made by Dr. Christine Grant. She is a professor and associate dean of faculty development and special initiatives. Copies of the book Success Strategies from Women in STEM, second edition, edited by Peggy A. Pitchard and Dr. Christine Grant, will be made available on site for purchase from the NC State bookstores. This event will be taking place at the Hunt Library Wednesday from 7 to 8 p.m. and is open to the public. This event is presented by the NCSU Libraries in collaboration with WISE, Women in Science and Engineering. So this Thursday, there'll be a really cool cognitive science talk. Robert C. Cummins of Becton Institute for Advanced Science and Technology, University of Illinois, will give a talk on neuroscience, psychology, reduction, and functional analysis in the Logic and Cognitive Science Lecture Series. This will take place in Room 140 Winston Hall, Thursday from 4.30 to 6. The Lecture Series Coffee and Viz will be hosting another event in Hunt Library this Friday, this week's event is titled Mapping Resilient Landscapes. Robin Grossinger is a senior scientist at the San Francisco Estuary Institute where he directs SFEI's Resilient Landscapes program. Through his 20 plus years of work analyzing how California landscapes have changed since European contact, he has utilized geographic and historical mapping to help guide landscape scale restoration strategies. Using examples from his work, he will demonstrate the mapping process and how maps can be used as an effective means to communicate. You may learn more about Dr. Grossinger's work from his article in the New York Times in Napa Valley Future Landscapes Reviewed in the Past. 
This week's Coffee and Viz Lecture Series is open to the public and will be taking place at 9.30 in the Hunt Library. So this concludes my events on campus, but there's still plenty more to do in Raleigh. For example, this Friday marks First Friday, and we all know that there is a free self-guided tour downtown of the cutting-edge cultural hotspots, local art galleries, art studios, alternative art venues, and museums stay open late for the first Friday of every month and welcome thousands of art-seeking enthusiasts downtown. That may be a really great way to start your spring break. And if that's not enough artwork for you, there will be an event at the Cam Art Museum March 5th, that's Saturday, and it'll be titled Coffee and Conversation, The Ease of Fiction. You may come and chat in an informal setting with the artists who have made The Ease of Fiction. This exhibit presents the work of four African artists living in the United States as the foundation of a critical discussion about history occurs, distinguishing between fact and fiction. There will be recent paintings, drawings, sculptural works that explore the issues of cultural identity, personal agency, and the very notion of African art. Again, this event will be Saturday, March 5th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. The Cam Raleigh is located at 409 West Martin Street, downtown Raleigh. Every Monday, there is the Nog Run Club hosting their weekly run, which starts and ends at the Raleigh Beer Garden. Each week's run starts at around 6.15. Make sure to show up 15 minutes earlier to register. This just helps keep track of your running. And after the run, you may stay and enjoy a $5 runner menu at the Raleigh Beer Garden. And each week, they have entertainment. 99.9% of the time, it's trivia. And this starts at 7.15 p.m. Maps are provided for three, four, five, and six-mile routes. So, again, there's quite a lot going on. I think I'm even running over time. And this has been the community calendar for the first week of March. I'm Peter Suzeni, wishing you all a great week ahead and an even better spring break. So, Ian, spring break is next week, starting, I guess, Saturday. Um, what are, what are you going to do for break? For spring break, I am planning on going to Miami uh, to visit my friend Sean. Uh-huh, that's, that's all you're going to be doing? Um, maybe Tallahassee? Tallahassee sounds so fun on spring break. You're really living it up. What are you going to be doing for spring break? I'm going to be... <laughs> I'm going to be doing something so much less cool. I'm going to be staying in Raleigh, except for the one day that I'm going to New York to visit grad school. Yep, live live in the life. Well. We'd like to thank Jake Winters, Marissa Jordan, Peter Suzeni, Saif Hassan, Jamie Halla, and Kevin Kronk for contributing this week. As always, if you've heard anything you've liked, you've hated, or anything that made you think... Let us know on Twitter at WKNC underscore EOT. And be sure to check out our blog and podcast at WKNC-EOT.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. But I want to remind all of our listeners that the voting for the runoff election for student body president and student senate president opens tomorrow at 8 a.m. and goes until 8 p.m. So make sure you have your voice heard because... 
As I like to say, apathy is not cool. And if you're interested in hearing uh, some of what the candidates had to say, you can listen to the student government debate that happened uh, on our podcast. Again, at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Myrtha Donastorg.